I invite you to turn to Psalm 52. Lord willing, next week we're going to jump back into Genesis. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, But this morning I want to walk through Psalm 52. And I'm just going to go ahead and read it to start off with. Holy Scripture says... To the choir master, a maskil of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. Selah. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. Selah. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. This is God's word and it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, uh, we are weak, but you are strong and you have sent forth your word as light to direct us and convict us and transform us and make us to be fit participants in the kingdom of God. And Father, we pray that you would work mightily in our hearts and minds this morning through this psalm. In Jesus' name. Amen. The the 150 Psalms of the Old Testament are a unique Holy Spirit-inspired resource that is designed to instruct us and recalibrate our hearts. Many of the Psalms were written in the midst of difficulty and distress. And while most of, uh, for most of the Psalms, we don't know the exact historical circumstances in which they were written. But occasionally, we are told about the specific circumstance in which the psalm was written. So you'll notice that Psalm 52 begins with a superscription, a brief introduction that is written above the rest of the text. The superscription is part of the inspired scriptural text. And it says, to the choir master, a mascal of David, let me just stop there. We don't know for sure what a mascal is. Uh, The ESV footnote says probably a musical or liturgical term. So we might think of a mascal as a particular kind of psalm or song. And it it was 
being submitted to the choir master so we understand that David intended for this psalm to be part of Israel's songbook and we assume also that the choir master would set the psalm to song. Now that initial information is rather routine but then the superscription gives us key information about the historical circumstances of the psalm says, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. These were not pleasant circumstances, and they refer to events that are recounted in 1 Samuel chapters 21 and 22. The book of 1 Samuel is about the rise and uh, fall of Israel's first king, King Saul, and, and Saul being replaced by a better king, King David. Saul decided to do things his own way, and that brought about his downfall. God withdrew his favor from Saul and chose David, a man after his own heart, to replace him. Thus Saul was doomed to destruction, whereas David was destined for the throne. But there was this overlapping period where even though Saul was under the judgment of God, he was still on the throne. And David, even though he had been anointed to be the next king, he wasn't on the throne yet. And so this, this set the stage for a lot of, of conflict and tension and drama between Saul and Saul's men and David and David's men. God's blessing was upon David, and God's blessing brought David great success, and David's success drove Saul to resentment, jealousy, and madness. Therefore, um, in 1 Samuel 18 and 19, Saul sought David's demise. And by the end of chapter 20, it had become clear to David that he needed to go on the run. He He needed to leave the service of King Saul and Saul's army. He needed to go on the run in order to preserve his life. And so as far as Israel's official state policy under King Saul was concerned, David was an outlaw, a fugitive, an enemy. And fugitives need help from the locals, don't they? So in 1 Samuel 21, David went on the run, and the first place he went was Nob. And there he met a priest, Ahimelech, who treated him kindly. Ahimelech Uh, uh, provided food for David and his men and also armed David with Goliath's sword. It was a kind thing and a right thing for Ahimelech to do. But as it happened, there was a certain Doeg the Edomite there observing Ahimelech's kindness to David. And so uh, Doeg filed it away. And in the next chapter... 1 Samuel 21, uh, I'm sorry, in in 1 Samuel 22, uh, Doeg assumed the role of informant, okay? Doeg told Saul in 1 Samuel 22, verses 9 and 10, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. That prompted Saul to charge Ahimelech with conspiracy 
against him. And at Saul's direction, Doeg killed Ahimelech and 84 other priests. I mean, this is mass murder sanctioned by King Saul, carried out by Doeg. In fact, the entire city of Nob and all its people were obliterated. 1 Samuel 22 concludes with these very interesting words. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there watching Ahimelech give him provisions, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. I just find that remarkable that after this brutal mass murder, including the taking of Abiathar's father, that David was able to invite Abiathar into this place of anxiety-free safekeeping. And how could he do that? The answer is because David himself had found a resting place for his soul in the Lord, as we see in Psalm 52 and in many other Psalms. So what do you do when an evildoer is intent on being an informant against you? Or maybe it's not quite so dramatic, but it's, you know, it's, it's gossip, it's slander, it's cutting you down. What do you do when a powerful person plans to use his tongue in order to bring you down? What do you do when a, when a wicked man plots and carries out destruction against you and against the ungodly? And the answer is, bank on the faithfulness of God. So let's walk through the psalm in six steps. First, the wicked man is out of step with reality, verse 1. The first verse involves a profound contrast. It's as if David is speaking directly to Doeg, not in person but through the poem. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? And then David immediately puts forth a contrasting thought. The steadfast love of God endures all the day. The rock-solid reality, the fundamental truth is that God is there. And his steadfast love continues at all times. God's steadfast love refers to his faithfulness, his covenant faithfulness. God makes promises and keeps them. He promises to uphold those who trust Him. But equally, He promises to punish those who forsake Him. God promises to vindicate His faithful ones and to bring retribution upon the evildoer. What would it mean to live in step with this reality? It would mean to bank on God's steadfast love and to let God's steadfast love transform you into the kind of person who lives accordingly, who lives faithfully and righteously and graciously as a member of God's covenant family. Such a person has a rightful claim on the promise of Psalm 103, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him, Psalm 103, 17. 
The mighty man of verse 1, however, does just the opposite. This man, Doeg, might be influential and powerful in the eyes of the world, but he's totally out of sync with God's steadfast love. Instead of living in accordance with the righteous dictates of God's covenant, this mighty man boasts of evil. Thus, Doeg has set himself up in opposition to God's steadfast love. God is pursuing one agenda. Doeg is pursuing a rival agenda. God's steadfast love is good news for David in the midst of his hardship, but Doeg has turned away from the grace that might have been his. As it says in Psalm 32.10, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Second, the wicked man inverts reality. Verses 2 to 4. To invert reality means to turn it upside down. The reality is that truth matters. But the wicked man brokers in deceit. You worker of deceit. Verse 2. Oh, deceitful tongue. Verse 4. The reality is that goodness is lovely and evil is horrifying. But the wicked man loves evil more than good. Verse 3. The reality is that a man ought to speak what is right, but the wicked man loves lying more than speaking what is right. Verse 3, instead of being a faithful man who's making an honest effort to build things that accord with the truth, goodness, and righteousness of God, the wicked man is given to destruction, verse 2, and words that devour, verse 4. The words of human beings ought to bring encouragement and help to others, but the wicked man's tongue is like a sharp razor, verse 2, that is wielded in order to injure and cut down. If only men like Doeg were outliers on the human stage. If only they were few and far between. But as we've seen in our study of Genesis, there are times when evildoers dominate the landscape. That's what led to the flood judgment and to the judgment upon the Tower of Babel. The prophet Isaiah described wayward Israel in these terms from Isaiah 59. He wrote, Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. How tragic. When injustice, unrighteousness, and deceit are normalized in society. How tragic when departing from evil puts you in grave danger. If you're troubled by all of the inversion going on in our society, remember this. There's, there's nothing new under the sun. This has been happening from the very beginning of the fall. Notice what David is doing in verses 2 to 4, and this is what you need to do. David is keeping his grip on reality. And it can be difficult to keep your grip on reality when powerful men like Saul and Doeg are plotting and scheming against all that is good and true and beautiful. But David kept his eyes fixed on the immovable foundations and unchanging standards from the Lord. He was focused on God's steadfast love, verse 1, and he remembered that which is good and right, verse 3. Point number 3, 
the wicked man will be banished forever. Verse 5. In the wise providence of God, God typically does not punish the wicked man the very first time that he acts wickedly. We should all be thankful for that. God typically lets the wicked man's wickedness run its course with warnings and exhortations to repentance, but the eventual judgment upon the wicked is certain. It says in Psalm 34, 16, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. It says in Psalm 37, verses 37 and 38, mark the blameless and behold the upright for there is a future for the man of peace, but transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. Those were the kind of thoughts in David's mind as he contemplates Doeg. So after exposing the character of this wicked man in verses 1 to 4, now in verse 5, David tells that wicked man that he is racing toward destruction. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The progression of thought here is sobering. In the first line, God strikes the wicked man himself, and therefore the man is personally broken down. In the second line, God tears the wicked man from his tent, thus rendering him homeless, without a family, without a house, without a people. And then in the third line, God uproots the wicked man from the land, therefore rendering the man landless nationless. It's as if his earthly citizenship is revoked and he's forfeited any right to live in God's good world. Just as it says at the end of Proverbs 2, for the upright will inhabit the land and those with integrity will remain in it, but the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. The wicked man is exiled to the realm of darkness and death, and there he shall suffer without a country, without a home, without a people, without true life, without the favor of God, forever. God will break you down forever, such as the bleak and miserable future of every human being who opposes God and God's people. Those who plot destruction shall be destroyed. Those who cut others down with their razor-like tongue will be cut down. Those who love all words that devour shall be devoured. Your destiny will correspond to your deeds. Now, this is a sobering word to the wicked man, but remember that David intends for all Israel, including righteous Israelites, to hear what he's writing. Even though, even though he's speaking to Doeg through the means of the psalm, he submitted it to the choir master so that all Israel would hear it. The, the righteous ones need to hear this sobering word to the wicked man because they, the righteous ones, ought to have confidence that they will ultimately be vindicated. Although the wicked persecute the righteous, in the end, God will judge in favor of his faithful ones. 
God will uphold the cause of those who are practicing righteousness. As Asaph recounted in Psalm 73, it is beneficial for the righteous man to contemplate the destiny of the wicked man because the the righteous man needs to know that his pursuit of righteousness is not in vain, right? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Matthew 6, 33. Pursue righteousness, 1 Timothy 6, 11. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, Matthew 5, 6. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever, Psalm 37, 29. Those whom the Lord leads in paths of righteousness, Psalm 23.3, may have confidence that they shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever, Psalm 23.6. So, those who are righteous need to hear Psalm 52's sobering word to the wicked man so that they might be encouraged to press on in the path of righteousness. But those who are wicked also need to hear this sobering word. And Why? Because they might perhaps be awakened to the peril that lies ahead. So much so that they might turn away from their wickedness and take refuge in the Lord. The wonderful truth of the Bible is that God in His great mercy has made a way for wicked people to be saved. And this is very good news for all of us because the Bible makes it clear that on account of our sinfulness... All of us are wicked. But didn't I just say that there are righteous people? Yes, I did, because there are. Biblically speaking, righteous people are formerly wicked people who have been forgiven and transformed. Whereas still wicked people are still in the grip of their evil and unbelieving heart. God's God's grace enlightens the face of the righteous, but His wrath abides upon those who continue to live disobedient lives. But the point at hand is that any wicked person hearing this message needs to understand that God offers you mercy. You haven't been destroyed yet. If only you will look unto the Lord and entrust yourself to Him. As it's written in the prophet Isaiah, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that He may have compassion on Him and to our God for He will abundantly pardon. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In other words, your track record of wickedness unrighteousness, rebellion, and sin in the past does not have to dictate your future. Of course, if you continue on the path of resisting the Lord's invitation and rebelling against His Word, then you will most certainly perish. But if the Holy Spirit 
moves upon your heart and you discover the wonderful grace of turning to the Lord and trusting in his promise, then you will be saved. And then you will understand what Paul meant when he wrote these words in Titus chapter 3. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Oh, wicked man. If you are weary of your wickedness and would like to put it away in the hope of finding a better life, then do not despair of your wickedness today. But understand that the blood of Jesus is greater than your wickedness. As the hymn says, dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide, whiter than snow you may be today. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, let's return to the flow of thought in Psalm 52. Here's the fourth point. The righteous ones will eventually behold the wicked man's utter folly and ruin. Verses 6 and 7. The wicked man who continues in his wickedness and refuses to repent will indeed be broken down, torn from his tent, and uprooted from the land. And when God's judgment falls on the wicked man... Verse 6 begins, the righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, see the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. God's judgment upon the wicked is a matter of public record. God intends for his judgments to be public and visible. God will not merely do what is just, but he will also display his justice. God will make it clear to the world that he has performed justice. The righteous will see God's judgment upon the wicked, and when the righteous, one, righteous ones see God's judgment upon the wicked man, they will experience a mingling of fear and laughter. It's really interesting. The fear arises from the fact that it is sobering for an image bearer of God to be ruined. It is sobering to know that God has poured out his righteous wrath on rebellious creatures. It's sobering to stand in awe of the righteous judgments of God. They are righteous and true and good. We might even tremble with the thought, except for the grace of God, we would have met the same wrath and have come to the same ruin. But this fear is accompanied by laughter. Now, don't think cheap glee or smug self-satisfaction. 
but rather evaluating the situation clearly from God's point of view. And when you see the situation clearly, it rightly elicits godly laughter. Now, I know this is going to require some explanation. In last week's sermon, I said that the question is not if you will judge, but how you will judge. Well, today, as we look at verses 6 to 7, we can now add, the question is not if you will laugh, but how and when you will laugh. Think, Think about it. You know as well as I do that in this present life, the wicked often laugh at the righteous. The proud rich people laugh at the poor lowly people. The persecutors laugh at the persecuted. The bullies laugh at the weak. Sinners laugh at the humble person who keeps his integrity and remains chaste and resists temptation. Evildoers poke fun at the people that they consider to be goody-two-shoes. The wicked think that it's ridiculous to concern one's self with God and the Bible and salvation and heaven. The giant Goliath thought it was ridiculous for a shepherd boy to take the field of battle against him. Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? 1 Samuel 16.43 The truth, however, is the polar opposite of Goliath's viewpoint. In fact, what is truly ridiculous is for a mere man to defy God. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. 1 Samuel 17, 45. Notice, it is the incongruous. It is the ridiculous and the absurd that elicits laughter. Now mark these words well. The question is not whether you will laugh at the absurd. The question is whether you will let the world standard or God's standard shape your understanding of absurdity. This is way more relevant than you might think because the world wants you to laugh. It wears down your moral resolve. Be careful what you laugh at. Be careful at what you find absurd. It's not whether you will laugh at absurdity, but which version of absurdity you will laugh at, God's or the world's. So don't walk away from Psalm 52 with a kind of over-pious uptightness whereby you assume that godly laughter is inconsistent with righteousness. It isn't. Humble yourself and get aligned with reality. And this is reality. God laughs at the wicked and their futile plots. Psalm 2, verses 1 to 4. Wisdom laughs at the calamity of the wicked who spurned wise counsel, Proverbs chapter 2, verse 26. And the reality of Psalm 52 is that the righteous walk in God's wisdom and thus come to share God's perspective. And so, in all due humility and fear, they laugh at the inevitable outcome of the wicked man's utterly foolish approach to life. 
It is absurd for a human being to not make God his refuge. It is absurd for a human being to trust in money. It is absurd for a human being to seek refuge in his own destruction. Of course, the wicked man doesn't consciously think that he is seeking refuge in his own destruction. But objectively speaking, that is exactly what he's doing. The wicked man was taking refuge in lies, in fool's gold, in facades, in sinking sand. The wicked man was taking refuge in the very things that bring about his destruction. Every breath, every heartbeat, every relationship, every good thing is a gift from the Lord. And the wicked man denies reality and builds a house of cards. And he's really impressed with it. He thinks it's going to hold. He thinks that house of cards is an unconquerable fortress. And now to see that all his lies have gone up in smoke and all his plots and schemes have come crashing down. In all this, the wicked man has shown himself to be a great fool. Do we take pleasure in the death of the wicked? No. But we must not fail to see the utter absurdity of trusting in something other than God. It is the height of folly to think that you can fail to take God into account and things are going to work out for you. That's ridiculous. The Holy One laughs at a mortal man who throws a fist at heaven and then only succeeds at knocking himself out. Perfect wisdom laughs. The righteous will laugh when they see that God has brought the wicked man's foolishness down upon his own head. Discover the Bible's serious view of laughter. Although the wicked man is always teetering on the edge of destruction, the case is altogether different with the righteous man. And this brings us to a fifth point of consideration in verse 8. Okay, The righteous man is alive and well in God's house. After telling the wicked man, God will break you down in verse 5, now David tells the wicked man that, uh, he tells him what it is like to be properly aligned with reality. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. This is beautiful. I am a planting of the Lord. I am the object of God's attentive care. I am tended by faithful hands. I am pruned by my all-wise Father. I am well watered and well nourished unto fruitfulness, and the light is always shining. The best and safest place in all the universe is God's house, for God's house enjoys God's presence and God's protection and God's provision and God's promise. David could invite Abiathar into safekeeping because David himself had discovered safekeeping in the faithful hand of God. Notice, however, that David is not boasting in himself as if, as if he had accomplished some great feat. Those who are righteous stand not on the basis of what their own hands have done, but on the basis of what God has graciously given. Therefore, David says in the second half of verse 8, I trust in the steadfast love of God. 
Remember, David had mentioned God's steadfast love all the way back in verse 1. The point in verse 1 is that the mighty man who boasts of evil is totally out of step with reality. A man ought to be anchored in and transformed by God's covenant mercies. But the wicked man has sailed far and wide in the opposite direction. But by way of contrast, David is wonderfully in step with reality. I trust in the steadfast love of God. I trust in the faithfulness of God. I trust in the promises of God. I believe that God will come through for me. And there's another contrast to observe between Doeg and David. What does Doeg boast in? He boasts of evil. And he's not just boasting of evil in some kind of an abstract philosophical sense. David I'm sorry, Doeg boasts in his own evil doing. He plots destruction, verse 2. He's a worker of deceit, verse 2. He loves lying, verse 3. He loves devouring words, verse 4. In verse 7, we learn that the wicked man trusted in his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. Do you get the overall picture? Doeg trusted in himself and in his own resources. Doeg trusted in his own evil doing and evil speaking and evil plotting and evil scheming. In all this he boasted of evil. But David was worlds apart from Doeg. But don't miss what the difference is. Listen carefully. It's not as if whereas Doeg was trusting in his own evil plotting that David was trusting in his own righteous plotting. Oh no, that's not the difference. The difference is that where Doeg trusted in himself, David trusted in the Lord. In Psalm 52, David does not boast of anything that he has accomplished or even that he might accomplish. David owes everything to the steadfast love of God. Doeg plots and schemes and thinks about all the money that's stashed away. David does one thing. He leans on the everlasting arms. He banks on divine resources. He believes God's promises. That's what he's doing. He's resting in the Lord. How long does God's steadfast love endure? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Verse 1. How long will David trust God's steadfast love? It says in verse 8, I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. Once God's steadfast love has found you, you will learn that you can never be separated from it. And what is more, you will never be able to get ahead of it. For as long as you have the ability to stand, which if you are a believer is forever, as long as you have the ability to stand, God's steadfast love will be there to stand on. When every plot and scheme of man has failed, when one wicked man after another has fallen, God's covenant love will continue to be what it has always been, an immovable rock, a mighty fortress, an inexhaustible fountain, a spring of everlasting joy. In this faithful love of God, we trust forever and ever. The thought of verse 8 leads naturally into the thought of verse 9 although there's an important shift to observe. In verse 8, it was as if David was still speaking to Doeg, but now in verse 9, the final verse, Doeg, uh, David, I'm sorry, David, he looks upward and he speaks directly to God, for the, I think for the first time in, the, in this psalm. 
And in these words, we encounter the sixth point from Psalm 52. And it's this, the righteous man will continue in gratitude for what God has already done and at the same time will continue in expectation of what God will do in the future. First, the gratitude, the praise, the thanksgiving. I will thank you forever because you have done it, the beginning of verse 9. Here again, David is not impressed with what David has done. It is also important to realize that David is not paralyzed by what Doeg has done. Instead, David is impressed with what God has done. The saving mercies that God has already promised and performed for David are more than enough to sustain David in thanksgiving and praise forever. But David isn't only looking back to what God has already done. He's also looking forward to what God will do in the future. Remember, when David wrote this psalm, he was still on the run from King Saul. He, he wasn't on the throne yet. He, he was going to have a lot of patient suffering to endure on his way to the throne. So looking forward, David's outlook, uh, his outlook is, I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. Get yourself in the company of the righteous and in that blessed company. Call on the name of the Lord and wait patiently for God to come through for you. Verse 9 reveals to us an indispensable pattern for our own walk with God. While the world has its eyes on what human beings do, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ we must fix our eyes on what the Lord does. Let's be mindful of what the Lord has already done in saving us, adopting us into His family, planting us in His house, transforming our lives and leading us through many twists and turns to this place that we now occupy. Remember and give thanks. At the same time, let's be mindful that much of the journey still lies ahead. And the key factor in the remainder of the journey is what the Lord will continue to do. He will continue to show up and manifest His beauty and grace in our midst and work in us and through us to accomplish His will and ultimately bring us safely into His everlasting kingdom. To conclude and to encourage you to earnestly pursue righteousness, God's way, I just want you to, in a short paragraph, I want you to see the contrast between the wicked man and the righteous man, all drawn from Psalm 52. At the most fundamental level, the wicked man trusts in his own resources, verse 7, but the righteous man trusts in the steadfast love of God, verse 8. The wicked man seeks refuge in the very things that bring about his destruction, verse 7, but the righteous man makes God his refuge. Verses 7 and 8. The wicked man is a worker of deceit, but the righteous man is preoccupied with the work that God has done. Verse 9. The wicked man loves evil more than good. Verse 3. But the righteous man cherishes the highest good, which is God's name, and waits for it. Verse 9. The wicked man uses his tongue to tell lies. But the righteous man uses his tongue to thank God 
forever. The wicked man uses his tongue to plot destruction and to cut down and devour other people, verses 2 and 4. But the righteous man lives happily in the presence of the godly and calls upon God's name, verse 9. In due course, the wicked man will be uprooted from the land of the living, verse 5. But the righteous man will remain firmly planted in God's house, verse 5. Uh, the, 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 the wicked man uh, will be torn from his tent, verse 5. But the righteous man is safe and sound, not in his own house, but in God's house, verse 8. The wicked man will be broken down forever. Verse 5, but the righteous man will trust in God and give thanks to God for just as long. That is for forever and ever. Verse 8, forever. Verse 9, the wicked man may sometimes think that he's having a blast as he blazes down his ruinous path. Verses 1 to 4, but the righteous man will have the last laugh. Verse 6, the bottom line is is that the wicked man is alienated from God's steadfast love, but the righteous man is wonderfully reconciled to and strengthened by God's steadfast love. Will you, trusting the Lord, follow the example of David? Let's pray. Father, I pray that these words would not quickly leave our head, but would dwell in our hearts. We're dealing with difficulties and trials and opposition all the time. I pray that we would not be preoccupied with what we think we're going to do about it. Pray that we would learn to trust in the steadfast love of God and to wait patiently for you to do what only you can do. Have mercy on us, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen.